0: Oh, man. Church family, um, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. The plan today is to begin with verse 10 and read through to the end of the chapter, which I know that's a lot. We've had as few as one verse at a time for the last few weeks. Um, That's a lot of ground to cover, though, this this 11 verses for sure. So so we're going to be moving pretty quickly, um, but hopefully still at a a pace where everybody can kind of hang with. So uh, while the kiddos are finding the bingo pictures that are hidden in this slide, um, you adults may have noticed that the title of the sermon uh, can be interpreted in at least a couple of ways uh, because the word appearance has more than one meaning. Uh, and that's fine. They, they both make sense in today's passage. On the one hand, appearance can refer uh, to when someone or something shows up, you know, whether whether expected or not, which Jesus certainly does in this passage. Um, On the other hand, appearance can mean how someone or something visually appears, how it looks. And so uh, we're going to see in today's passage that, that Jesus, in John's vision, looks very different in his glorified state than when he was on earth. And he also sounded very different, both in his voice and in the actual words that he speaks, which we'll get to later. Um, anyway, the last few weeks we've discussed the circumstances behind uh, John's exile to Patmos, and we've talked about uh, why God chose to reveal the the goings on of the future to and, and through this disciple, this man uh, John, to his church. And today's passage from Revelation, this is probably the first in which John goes beyond his his introductory comments that we keep on um, you know going through the last few weeks, but. He begins sharing his actual vision from the Lord in this text. And so we're going to take a moment to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Uh, Father God, I, just, I, I lift up this, this message to you. I thank you, Father, for each person that's here listening, that is listening online from home, whether they're sick or um, just in a, in a too far position to be able to drive out each week. But uh, Father, we, we thank you. We ask that each person here will be good soil, that the, the word will take root and bear fruit in our lives. And I pray that we can apply the things that we learn, God. I don't want anybody to leave here just informed. I pray that we are all transformed by your word in some way, whether it's a, a huge, um, just explosive transformation for a person maybe who to be saved for the first time. Or maybe, Lord, it's someone that's incrementally moving toward you, and, uh, and Father, they, they get at that boost that they need. Father, whatever the case may be, help us all to grow. And I pray that you give me um, the ability to make it through without uh, getting my words too scribbled up. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so verse 10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. All right, we're going to take a minute to unpack that, okay? This, this part isn't in your notes. And so if you're a person that just has to take notes, squeeze it in the margin, otherwise just relax. <laughs> just you know, just relax and and, and you can just kind of track with me. What do you think it means that John was in the spirit? Praying? Maybe. I mean, from the context, I think it's certainly more than the normal Christian experience of having the indwelling Holy Spirit, because he is always with God's people. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside you, okay? It seems there's something deeper here that he's talking about. I I feel like the words indicate something more substantial than just the indwelling. And we're going to see John repeats this phrase three more times in the book of Revelation. You see it used in the same way in a very few other instances in the Bible Uh, It does say in the spirit a few times. If you go look through um, uh, one of those uh, the search engines, you know, it'll it'll give you a few things. But but as far as it specifically meaning this, the context is narrow. There's one in Ezekiel where he says, the Lord brought me in the spirit to a valley of dry bones, right? There's one uh, in the, the Gospel of Luke where it says, Simeon came in the spirit to the temple. And that's where he met who? The newborn Jesus, right? So clearly these people were experiencing a more intimate communion with God through His Spirit, which is, which is how they're able to receive these visions or this, this special information. Now, I don't know from Scripture whether God gives every believer this capability, but I, I do believe it is a valuable and good thing for us to seek this depth of spiritual connection with Him. I think we ought to be striving to know God more intimately than we currently do. Now, what about the phrase, the Lord's Day? What's John referring to? Yeah, Sunday. It's it's not the Sabbath. He would have said the Sabbath. He's referring to Sunday. The early church called the first day of the week the Lord's Day because Christ rose from the grave on Sunday. So John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, when he hears an amazingly loud voice behind him, anybody in here ever been in a marching band? A few of y'all. Anybody ever played the trumpet? Shannon's like, it was cornet. It wasn't trumpet. <laughs> you play the trumpet? Okay, so you've been a. Tr- it, it is a loud instrument. Yes, it, it's very very loud. So there's this voice behind John that's just blasting instructions at him. More, more on that later, but, uh, but for now, consider that John is being told to record everything that he's about to observe in order to share it with these seven churches. And the voice gives him the location of the churches that he's supposed to be writing to. And if you're wondering where they are, um, that, that's a map real quick. It just kind of shows you the general vicinity um, and you can probably see all seven of them are in a specific part of the world, which is Asia Minor. We, we think of it today, modern days, we call it Turkey. Okay? And the Apostle Paul was very active in this part of the world, but we don't, we don't have biblical evidence that he started all seven of these churches. Okay, it's possible that some of the other folks that he traveled with or that he, he mentored went and started these churches. But either way, there's a lot we can learn from these churches in the next couple of chapters, and we will, Lord willing, unless Jesus comes back or something happens to, to me in between now and, and the next few weeks, we're going to learn what Jesus said to these churches and how to apply it to us. I'm actually very excited about that. But anyway, so, so this, this trumpet-like voice has definitely gotten John's attention. It's giving him orders, okay? So let's pick up in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning... I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, or like a Son of Man. Excuse me, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Now we're gonna we're gonna interrupt this description for a moment because there's really a whole lot that we can connect here with uh, with what John sees with other. Uh, occurrences, other descriptions that show up in the Word of God, particularly in the Old Testament, okay? And maybe the most important thing about these other descriptions is who it is that they're describing. But first, it's important to note, the one who's speaking to him is standing in the midst of seven lampstands made of gold. There's a very heavy symbolism. We're going to get into that shortly, okay? But let's look at John's choice of words. First, he says, "...the voice belonged to someone." who looks like a son of man. And it's interesting to me that that he doesn't choose to say the son of man. I actually went back and looked in the Greek to make sure there was no definite article. He says a son of man, essentially. And and considering what comes next, it almost seems like he would have said the, but but he doesn't. But based on the rest of what he tells us about this this being, the reason that we're told that he looks like a son of man is so that we're able to recognize that he is different from, from the other angelic beings that show up in heavenly visions. You know, he's he's not like a dragon, like a seraphim. He's, he's not you know this this multi-faced, covered in eyes thing like the cherubim. He he's he's different. So clearly, this this being is in the form of a man, and yet far more. And thus, I believe we can identify him. And as we continue to read, we'll see that this is absolutely the case. This is the divine man, Jesus Christ Himself. Okay, that's who we're referring to. That's who John is listening to in this passage. And then we're told what this this man is wearing. John describes it as as a long robe and I think that's significant because it shows a couple of things. First, modesty. When you had a long robe and formality. You know, that wasn't something that people would typically wear just and I know we wear our robes around the house, right? <laughs> but when you wore your long robe back then, you're being fancy. <laughs> and so it also says he's wearing this gold sash that's wrapped around his chest. Um, the King James Version calls it a golden girdle, which I enjoy saying out loud, a golden girdle. Um, and any, any of John's fellow Jews should have been able to recognize this, this description from the Torah. Because Aaron and his sons were, were had, had these priestly garments that were made specifically for them. And so I think that the, the significance of the robe and the sash is probably related to the the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now consider the book of Hebrews. It tells us that the earthly things God told Moses to make for the tabernacle later they used them in the temple, those things he says are shadows and copies of heavenly things. That's also Hebrews is where we read about Jesus being our great high priest. And almost the entire middle section of Hebrews is on that subject. It explains the importance of Christ's role in atoning for our sins. And this is the, it's compared and contrasted with the high priest's role in the Old Testament. The earthly high priest and what he did. So, of course, in every way, Jesus, he's superior to the high priest under the law because they were unable to be sinless, first of all. And we also see in Scripture, uh, he says very clearly, the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins. He says it's it's basically, it serves as a placeholder until the blood of Christ, as Bill was talking about this morning. That is is the perfect lamb that can truly wash away our sins. So the next thing that John refers to is the fact this entity has snow-white hair. Now Proverbs tells us that white hair is a crown of glory. It refers to it being gained in a righteous life. It is also called the honor of the aged. I was thinking this morning how classy and beautiful my wife looks with her. She just said, I'm going to let my, my, my gray come in. I'm not going to color it. And I think we should make March gray pride month. <laughs> Sorry. No, <laughs> no I, I think it's, it, She she's, very pretty. Anyway, so um, gray is good. It's a good thing. I'm getting gray in the temples. I think it looks distinguished. I like it. Anyway, it, it, it makes me look a little more mature. Anyway, so <laughs> looks can be deceiving. All right, so the next thing, uh, we're talking about snow white hair here. Uh, there's a connection to wisdom, okay? But there's also perhaps even greater one to purity, You know, one is reminded of the passage in Isaiah where, where it's it's chapter 1, where God says that the sins of His people are like scarlet, right? He says, but they'll be washed whiter than snow. And this is a great place to pause and do a quick flashback, right, to Daniel chapter 7. It contains a very similar description of this heavenly scene between the Father and the Son. Um, I want you to notice how the two characters, both characters, in, in Daniel's vision resemble this singular character, In John's vision, okay, in the middle of verse 13, Daniel starts and he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. The throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given Dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and, and languages should serve Him. He says His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. Another passage this brings to mind is Micah 5.2 where it's prophesied that out of Bethlehem will come a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old. You remember this? His coming forth is from old, of ancient days. Now, clearly, this is, this is a reference to the reign of Christ. But it was revealed to John in much greater detail where he, you know, it, it, it connects us to Jesus' words in the gospel that John wrote where he says that he is one with the Father. We're going to continue with this description. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the, sh- the, the sun shining in full strength. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, What an amazing mental picture John is painting for us. And and also how terrifying. (laughs) Wow. What do you think it means that his eyes were like a flame of fire? You know, to to my mind, it signifies total and perfect knowledge. Because this being would be able to see everything. Fire. Catharsizes, is that a word? It, It it takes out the impurities. It burns through things. It sees not just the outside of a person, but the inside, down to their motivation and the intentions of every heart. Nothing in creation can be hidden from these eyes. The feet like burnished bronze. That's that's interesting to me because in the ancient world, burnished bronze was was really valuable. It had it, it was similar to gold in some ways, but it had far greater strength. Um, you may know that that bronze is an alloy. It's made mostly. Of, uh, of copper, but with some tin in it, and it, it's a very pretty color. It's kind of a uh, I'd say brownish gold. You know, it's, it's kind of a goldish brown color, uh, but it, but it's it's far harder than wrought iron. And it's less susceptible to tarnishing than stainless steel or than regular steel before they actually made stainless steel. So it was used in ships because it, what's that? And blades? yeah, before well, before steel um it's very strong and feet are the physical foundation of a man okay so so to have feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace unless it was just aesthetic i think it probably symbolizes having a strong and solid foundation which clearly christ has and it just gets weirder from there let's talk about the stars later consider that this person had what looked like a broad sword the, the Greek is a big sword coming out of his mouth that's a pretty wild book for sure right you think piercings are weird today you know he's he has the sword coming out of his mouth in Ephesians 6 and Hebrews 4 there are metaphorical comparisons that we read between uh, the word of God and, and swords but here we see that this metaphor it's be, The the figurative has become literal in this vision. And I think that sword of his mouth is, in fact, the word of God, which is truth. You know, the Bible says that, that God cannot lie. And so there will always and only be truth emanating from Christ, who is himself truth with a capital T. As for his face, John says it's like the sun. That's intense. Anybody ever tried to look directly at the sun for more than a second or two? Yeah, you probably shouldn't admit that in public. Um, but it's a bad idea because it, it literally hurts. Like not just in the pain-causing sense, it can actually damage your retinas forever. So don't do that. Um, but John says that this being has a face like the sun, meaning it is shining with glory and power, which is probably what it was intended to convey. You know, Shannon had a a gentleman who was a patient a few years ago who was actually present when they were uh, testing nukes in the New Mexico desert. And he told her the story of of how he and a bunch of other soldiers were crammed in a trench outside the blast radius, and they were given welding goggles to wear that were so dark that, that, that they were basically opaque in normal light. But they wore them to watch the detonation of an atomic bomb from a few miles away. And when this bomb went off, he told Shannon he could see the bones in his hand. It's amazing to think the sun itself is basically a nuclear explosion that never ends. Well, it'll end one day. But it's just this ongoing blast, and it's bright and it's powerful. And It allows life to exist on this planet, and yet it was just a creation of the person talking to John. Speaking of talking, it's not something that John sees, per se, but as a bonus, he describes this voice like a trumpet, but also like mighty rushing waters. Now, we know that God can choose to express Himself in, in whatever way He desires. You know, we, we see Him uh, from the story of Elijah, you know, from, from a raging fire to wind that shatters rocks to an earthquake, to a gentle whisper. We see Him appearing in a violent storm in Job, but in a tiny infant in Matthew. In this vision, I think, I think this massively powerful voice is the Lord's way of communicating His great authority. He has, he has an, an unmistakable identification here. He's showing who He is, even before stating His name as the Lord. See, this is all, all of this is leading up to, to the climactic revelation in the text of, of who is actually speaking to John. So many of the, descriptor, the, the descriptors he's used, they, they tie into this awe-inspiring revelation of Almighty God in the Old Testament. And there's a bunch of them. In fact, when reading this description, uh, I, I was kind of picturing in my mind you know, uh, the Israelites in the book of Exodus when they were cowering at the foot of the mountain. You know, Exodus tells us that when Almighty God descended to the mountaintop to speak with Moses, it says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the, tra- the, the camp trembled. And yet, this is not specifically God the Father that John has seen. In fact, it's the divine Christ. And don't miss the fact that John was very familiar with Jesus on earth. To the point, I mean, he had, a, he had an unusually close relationship with Jesus. You remember, he, he was next to him at the table during the Passover. He leaned back on Jesus' chest. Lord, who is it? You know. He had a close relationship with Jesus. He had even observed Jesus being transfigured on a different mountain, Traditionally, Mount Tabor, we don't know for sure. And while while that was confusing and it was frightening, it wasn't until seeing the full glory of the heavenly Christ that John said, I fell to the ground as though dead. You ever heard somebody claim that when I get up there, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind about X, Y, Z. You ever heard somebody say that? That is not going to happen. Okay, When they get to heaven, assuming they do, if they can even form a syllable, I'd be surprised. So back to our narrative, John has literally collapsed, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. There's a lot here to dig into, but we must not ignore those first few words because they are truly awesome but he laid his right hand on me. You know, laying hands on someone can have different connotations in different contexts, can't it? But in this case, there is no malice, no violence, just a loving touch that is meant to convey total acceptance and to strengthen weak knees. Alexander McLaren wrote a a commentary um, he wrote a paragraph about it. He had such a way with words. I was like, I, I don't want to try to, you know, try to change it up, or I just want to read it to you the way he wrote it, okay? The language is a little dated, but it's so good. Listen, he says, Is this tremendous figure like the Christ on whose bosom John had leaned? Yes. For one chief purpose of this book is to make us feel that the exalted Jesus is the same in all essentials as the lowly Jesus. The heart that beats beneath the golden girdle is the same that melted with pity and overflowed with love here. The hands that bear the seven stars are those that were pierced with nails. The eyes that flash fire are those that dropped tears at a grave over Jerusalem. The lips from which issues the sharp sword are the same which said, I will give you rest. He has carried all his love, his gentleness, his sympathy into the blaze of deity, and in his glory is still our brother. Isn't that cool? Woo! It gives me chills just reading it. In his glory, Jesus is still our brother. Wow. Anyway, uh, so we've talked about what John saw. Now let's look about what Je- let's look at what Jesus says in this passage. Okay? Don't worry, this is faster than the first part. Okay? Just saying. This fits a, there's a lot of world-shaking truth that's squeezed into this little thing that Jesus says here. And so uh, we're going to kind of pick it apart. This is how God's word tends to be. You know, there's a lot put in a little. Um, But before this self-revelation, he tells his disciple whom he loved, fear not. In his kindness, Jesus lets John know that he is safe. You know, when confronted by the majesty of the Lord, it's typical. We see it all throughout Scripture for people to respond with abject terror, okay? But Christ is quick to comfort his friend and brother John. But then we see what amazing claims he makes about himself. Claims which his glorified status here certainly prove. Okay? First, Jesus essentially says that he is God and the Christ. In other words, by by, by saying, I am the first and the last. He is making a claim that only God has ever made in Scripture. He made it at least four times just in the 40s chapters of Isaiah. Okay, But then by the following description, he makes it clear that he is also God in the second person as the Son, distinct from God the Father. And we know this because only Christ the Son could make the claim that he died and is alive forevermore. Okay? God the Father did not die. God the Spirit did not die. Only the Son, in human form, has that distinction. Jesus Christ is the one who died, rose, and lives forever. Now, when we read these words here in in the Revelation, we can fill in the gap, okay, with the middle step. He doesn't specifically name that here, but that is his miraculous resurrection. So Jesus actually introduces himself with the gospel. I mean, think about that. He introduces himself with the gospel. Isn't that cool? I mean, by, by saying I'm the first and the last, he, he's expressing his divine identity, but then he makes reference to his atoning death on the cross, right, which, which paid the price for, for, for our sins, paid the debt that we earned by sinning against a holy and righteous God. And then the fact that he's alive forevermore proves he did, in fact, die and rise from the grave. And that he is triumphant over death, and, and having been raised to life again, he is never again to die. But he has ascended into the heavens, where he has resumed his position, the right hand of the Father, and taken again upon himself the glory that he laid aside in becoming human. Now, this, this is a, a beautiful way to understand who Jesus is and what God did through him in order to forgive our sins and make us like him in holiness and in glory. This is, as Paul said in Romans 8, Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. What an amazing truth this is. That Christ is still pleading our case before the Father. He's still making intercession for us. He's still delivering to us the divine grace that he earned with his perfect obedience. Let's continue with what Jesus said. Um, does anybody know what it means whenever we see keys in Scripture? Well, just, just like a literal bearer of keys has the ability to you know open and close doors because it can lock and unlock, so the metaphorical bearer of keys symbolizes their to do the same thing. Uh, So so in saying that he has the keys, Christ is revealing that he has ultimate authority over death and Hades. He is able to determine who is to be either withheld or released from Hades, which, by the way, in Revelation, um, death and Hades are personified. They actually appear as characters later. Now, death is the enemy of life. Fair to say. While Hades appears to be the holding tank for those who will later be cast into the lake of fire. But anyway, they hold no sway over Jesus whatsoever. Okay? He, he has overcome. He has full authority and control over them. And this brings to light what Jesus said in Matthew uh, twenty-eight, eighteen. He said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Right. It, it's also a reminder of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. The last enemy to be defeated is death. As John is seeing a vision of things to come, including the end of days, this is going to come back around later. So so anyway, after saying all these things, Jesus reminds John, who's probably a bit distracted at this point, to write this down, okay? Jesus had a purpose in sharing this revelation with John, and it wasn't just for John's edification, it was also for the edification of seven specific churches and future generations of believers who would read it, like us. So everything, everything that he told John to write down here is nearly 2,000 years later to serve as a warning, as a comfort, and as a prophecy about some of things that have already happened from our standpoint and also things that are to come. Let's finish up with verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches the end of the chapter. Now, this last part is pretty self-explanatory, but we're going to come back around to a few more things John sees, because Jesus is very specific about their meaning, okay? Remember, the glorified Christ was standing in the midst of seven lampstands and holding seven stars in his right hand. And the image that this description brings to mind is really cool, you know? There's an artist's portrayal there on the slide, but just picture I mean, if you, if you think about how big stars are, and then you realize that God can actually hold them in His hand the way you and I might hold Skittles, that's mind-blowing. It, it's brain-busting to me. But, but note this. First, number seven is very important in Revelation. It shows up multiple times all throughout the book, and it's a combination of the number of God, which is three, for obvious reasons, and the number of earth, which is four. And in Scripture 7, often it symbolizes perfection, although it's also a a literal representation of the number of churches that John's going to write to. And as Jesus points out, the stars in his hand are the angels. That word literally in Greek is messengers. They are the the angels or messengers of the seven churches to whom John is going to write. And we're going to be examining each of these letters to these angels in the next subsequent weeks. We're going to discuss a couple of options about what, what an angel of the church would be. But, uh, and then as Jesus also identifies, the lampstands are the churches themselves. Okay, And I honestly, I find this to be a really powerful metaphor when you consider what a lampstand is. It elevates light. Think about that. It lifts up light. To a place where it can give illumination to everyone in the house. From Jesus' own example. Matthew 5. With the light they can see. That gives them the ability to know things. Right? That's what illumination does. It helps us to know things about our surroundings. It provides comfort. It can provide safety. Y'all, this is what the church is called to do. It's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to hold up the light so it can save people from falling into the pit in the dark. It's to reveal truth to people. That is what we are called to do. And we've got to... to, to There are so many admonitions in the next seven messages to these different churches that I think, starting next week, by the way, I I think this is going to be so valuable to us. I hope that all of you can make all of these. But, But for now, let's close with this. Based on on what we've seen and we've heard about Jesus this morning, don't you want to be on His side? Well, you have an open invitation today as we stand up together. Stand up together. If you've never believed, then believe. Believe this morning. If you've never confessed him as Lord, then confess. If you've never been baptized, you have the opportunity to be baptized this morning. Do so. And if you've done all of these things, but you've never walked in obedience to Christ, you, you can start that today. You must. That's what we're called to do. So I'm going to pray and then we'll sing. Father God, I ask if there's anybody here who does not know you, change their heart, O oh Lord.